Good morning. Welcome to Lakewood Bible Chapel. Um, please open your Bibles and turn with me to Genesis chapter 1 and stand for the reading of God's Word. Starting in verse 6, we read, Then God said, Let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters, and let it separate the waters from the waters. So God made the expanse and separated the waters which were below the expanse from the waters which were above the expanse, and it was so. And God called the expanse heaven, and there was evening, and there was morning a second day. Heavenly Father, we pray that you would bless the reading of your word this morning. Lord, we ask that you would open up our eyes to see you. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Previously, we have seen God's creative work on the first day of creation. On the first day, God created the heavens and the earth in their most basic elemental forms. We saw that God created the earth formless and void, like a lump of clay yet to be molded by its maker. We saw the God, that God created the deep over which the Spirit of God was hovering. Finally, we saw that God spoke and brought light into existence and separated it from the darkness, naming the darkness night and the light day. This morning, our text continues to reveal what God did on the second day of creation. And let me just say, before we jump into verse 6, that the discussion about what took place during the creation week is not primarily a scientific discussion. The scientific method requires a hypothesis for which tests are performed, and the results of those tests are observed. The point is that no one but God was there to observe what happened. And so the question of what took place during the whole of creation week is not primarily a scientific one, but a historical one. And thus, in order to find an answer to what happened, we must ask the questions of a historian. Namely, who is there that can tell us what happened, and what do, what do they have to say about it? Well, in the beginning, God. God was there. God was there because He's always been there. God was there when nothing else was there but Him. And so there is no eyewitness testimony for us to turn to in order to understand what events transpired to create the universe. No eyewitness except one. God was there. So the question that really must be asked then is, will you listen to God when He tells His eyewitness account here in these words in Genesis chapter 1. We can know that Genesis 1 is true because God, the only one that was there, gave us Genesis 1. Now, some may say that we can't really know anything through revelation. They say we must be able to observe with our eyes something before we can claim that it is really true. Well, let me just emphasize this point here. Revelation is just as reliable a means, if not more of a reliable means, of knowing something than observation. 
In fact, science, whether the secularists know it or not, also relies on revelation. Science relies on something called natural revelation, which is sometimes called general revelation. Paul speaks of this in Romans 1.20 when he says the following, "...because that which is known about God is evident within them, for God made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world, His invisible attributes, both His eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly seen." being understood through what has been made, so that they are without excuse. Whereas when we look to the Scriptures for answers to these questions, we are not relying on natural revelation. Rather, we rely on something called special revelation, which is spoken of in Hebrews chapter 1, which says, God, having spoken long ago in the fathers, to the fathers and the prophets in many portions and in many ways, in these last days spoke to us in His Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the worlds. All right, with that understanding, let's turn our attention to verse 6 in our text this morning as we consider the first point in our outline, God's command issued. Verse 6 starts with the word, then. This word is the very next word that follows from the conclusion of day one. There was evening and there was morning, one day, then. There is no delay, there is no lingering, there is no break, and there's not even thousands of years, and there's definitely not 13.77 billion years between the end of day one and the beginning of day two. This is the implication of this word, then. Immediately after day one, day two started. Immediately after day two, day three started. And so on the pattern goes, without wavering for all six days of creation. There was evening and there was morning then. Then what? Well, our text says, then God said. We should pay attention when we see these words. For when God says something, it always, without fail, every time comes to pass. Consider the words of Isaiah, and this is God speaking. So will my word be which goes forth from my mouth. It will not return to me empty without accomplishing what pleases me and without succeeding in the matter for which I sent it. Not only does God's word always, every time, accomplish its purpose, God's word stands forever. It cannot be undone, for there is no one, there is no thing more powerful than God. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Then God said, let there be light, Uh, sorry, let there be Let there be. And so here we have God issuing a creative command, calling for something to come in existence from nothing. The point is that before this was said, that which God commanded to be was not. In our case, before God said, let there be an expanse, not light this time, expanse. (laughs) Before God said, let there be an expanse, there was no expanse. But after he said it, the expanse was there from nothing. 
And this nothing that I'm speaking of, it's not some fancy scientific term that really means something. For example, Lawrence Krauss, a well-known atheist and theoretical physicist from Arizona State University, in his book, A Universe from Nothing, says the following, One of the things about quantum mechanics is not only can nothing become something, nothing always becomes something. Nothing is unstable. Nothing will always produce something in quantum mechanics. Interestingly, later on in Krauss's book, he tells us that nothing actually ends up being the quantum vacuum. That's not nothing, that's something. The problem that the atheist has in denying the existence of God is that something, God, always had to be there. This is true uh, if anything is to come into existence. And so they end up saying ridiculous things like nothing will always produce something. But we know better. Genesis tells us that out of nothing, out of the absence of something, out of the absence of everything, out of non-being, God created because God was there. Only the sovereign God of the universe over which he has total and complete control can say these words as a command or as a decree and it is immediately carried out. Then God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters, and let it separate the waters from the waters. When we read this on our first pass, it may seem confusing. And I think the reason why this verse and verses like we've previously seen here in Genesis 1 are confusing, verses like verse 2, which says, And the earth was formless and void, and darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the surface of the waters. The reason that these verses strike us as hard to understand is because we only know of creation after it was completed. We only have experience with creation. Our only point of reference is after God declared that it was good and after sin corrupted that which God has called good. Whereas the verses that we are considering in this chapter are describing creation prior to its completion and prior to the fall. Creation is only partially complete at this point in our text. So for example, in verse 2, when we think of the earth, we think of a round sphere with land and oceans. But God hasn't yet formed the earth into what we know of it today. Instead, in verse 2, the earth is formless and is void. And I think the same is true for us here in verse 6. We can't conceive, we can't picture in our minds what is going on here. We can't understand a formless and void earth that has water somewhere, where exactly in relation to the earth isn't even made clear. But we know that there was the earth and water, and now God is speaking this expanse into existence right in the midst of these waters, which were created on day one wherever these waters might be in relation to the formless and void earth. And oh, how tempting it is to come up with some sort of theory to make all of that much more palatable, to make all of that fit neatly into the little box that we're trying to fit it in. But we would make a grave mistake if we, in our inability to wrap our heads around this, 
began to draw on external ideas to try and make this fit into our limited and finite minds. To force it to become something that we can understand instead of simply reading it for what it says. And isn't this something that we are often tempted to do with Scripture? When we can't conceive of how something works, or even worse, when we feel that something in Scripture isn't fair, or doesn't line up to our standard for righteousness, or to our standard for that which is good or just, we say it must not be so. We say that's not really what God's Word says. We even say that can't be what God thinks. That can't be what God does, or that can't be how God has done it. It is far better that our minds, that our intellect, that our reason is broken by the Scriptures, rather than imposing our flawed logic and finite reason onto the perfect and eternal Scriptures in such a way that we seemingly break God's Word. This word expanse, it is an interesting one, and surprise, surprise, there are a number of different opinions on what it means. The first thing to recognize is that God created this expanse. It's important to realize that in Genesis chapter 1, God performs two types of acts in creation. First, he speaks things into existence from nothing like we see here. Second, he manipulates the things which he has created. We see an example of this in the second half of verse 6 when God created the expanse. He then used it to separate the waters, manipulating something that he had already created. The word for expanse in the Hebrew is rakia, which means to beat, to stamp, to beat or hammer out, to spread out. Some translations have rendered the word rakia as firmament. Given this definition, it is interesting to consider how the rest of Scripture refers to God's creation of the heavens in passages such as the following. Psalm 104, verses 1 to 2 says, Bless the Lord, O my soul. O Lord, my God, you are very great. You are clothed with splendor and majesty, covering yourself with light as with a garment, stretching out the heavens like a tent. Isaiah 44, 24 I am the Lord who made all things, who alone stretched out the heavens. Isaiah 42, 5, thus says God, the Lord who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and what comes from it, who gives breath to the people on it and spirit to those who walk in it. And Jeremiah 10, 12, it is he who made the earth by his power who established the world by his wisdom and by his understanding stretched out the heavens. As I mentioned before, there is much debate as to what this expanse is exactly. Theories range from it being the atmosphere where the birds and clouds are, while some suggest it is outer space, and some even suggest that it refers to a hard metal-like dome or vault over the atmosphere in which the sun, moon, and stars were placed. And I think each of these have some merit. Whatever the case, though, I think that if we consider the immediate context of Genesis 1 and the other references to this word rakia in the creation account, as well as how it's used throughout the Old Testament, that we'll have a clearer picture as to what it means. 
Let's take a look at how the word expanse is used in verses 14 to 17 on the fourth day of creation, and then we'll look at verse 20 on the fifth day of creation. Genesis 1, 14 to 17 reads, Then God said, Let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night, and let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and years, and let them be for lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth. And so it was. So God made the two great lights, the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night, and also the stars. And God placed them in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth. And so we see that God created the sun, moon, and stars and placed them in the expanse of the heavens specifically for the purpose of giving light on the earth. Genesis 1.20 says, Then God said, Let the waters swarm with swarms of living creatures and let birds fly above the earth across the face of the expanse of the heavens. And so we see that God created the birds to fly above the earth and across the face of the expanse of the heavens. In addition to its use on days 2, 4, and 5, here are some other uses of the word rakia in the Old Testament. Psalm 19.1, which Noel read for us earlier or quoted. Psalm 19.1 says, The heavens are telling of the glory of God, and the expanse is declaring the work of His hands. Psalm 150, verse 1, Praise Yah, praise God in His sanctuary, Praise Him in His mighty expanse. And Daniel 12, 3, And those who have insight will shine brightly like the brightness of the expanse of heaven. And those who lead the many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. In all of these references, we see either directly or indirectly the heavens mentioned or at least implied. So with all of this in mind, let's return to how the word expanse is used in our text this morning. Back to verse 7, we see that God used the expanse to separate the waters below it and above it. In verse 8, we see that God calls this expanse which He has created heaven. And so from a simple reading of the text, and considering how the word expanse is used throughout the Old Testament, it seems that this expanse is the sky that it is outer space, or said another way, that it is the vacuum of space, which we see when we turn our heads up and look into the heavens. Now, it's important to note that this expanse has been placed here on day two in advance of there being the sun, moon, and stars. It also doesn't appear that this expanse is the atmosphere atmosphere surrounding the earth, but may refer to the outer edges of of the atmosphere because of how the word expanse is used in Genesis 1.20, which mentions the birds flying across the face of the expanse of the heavens. It seems that God, here on the first and second days of creation, that He is just setting the stage, so to speak, that He is getting out the chessboard but hasn't yet placed the pieces on it, or that He's painting the canvas black before He lays in any of the scenery and detail. And this is very likely the reason that God does not yet call what He has created here on day two good. Notice how God calls the light He created on day one good. Verse four, God saw that the light was good. 
And if we look ahead to day three, we see that when God created the dry land and, that the, and the sea, he also called it good. We see this also when he created the vegetation, the sun, moon, and stars, the fish, and the birds, the animals, even the completion of creation. All of these things God calls good, but on day two, God did not call the expanse. He did not call the separation of the waters good. I suspect this is the case because God has not yet completed his creative work in the heavens, and he has not yet completed his creative work in the deep. Day two was an interim step that, which would be completed on day three when God would form the land and sea and call it good, and then on day four when he would call the sun, moon, and stars good. Now, I'd like to just pause for a moment and consider the sheer size of what we are talking about here. In essence, God has created the place where he will end up placing the sun, the moon, the stars, every planet, every galaxy, nebula, and black hole, every asteroid and comet. Everything that would constitute the universe will fit within this expanse. And these objects, which will be created on day four, are so large that we can't even conceive of their size. Astronomers say that there are more than 10 times as many galaxies out there than the Hubble Space Telescope is capable of seeing. They estimate that there are somewhere around 2 trillion galaxies within the observable universe. And the size of these galaxies is measured in a unit called a light year. A light year is the distance that light travels over the period of one year. Now, Light travels at the speed of 186,000 miles per second. And so one light year constitutes 5.88 trillion miles. You would have to take 200 million trips around the earth to travel the distance of one light year. And our galaxy, the Milky Way galaxy, is 100,000 light years across. With the largest known galaxy called IC 1101, spanning 6 million light years in diameter. And on day four, God will place all of these inconceivably large objects in the expanse which we are considering from our text this morning. We grasp for words because language is not adequate to explain these things. And all God had to do was say, Let there be an expanse, and there it was. We truly cannot conceive of these things. Our minds are so puny, so inadequate, so limited, so finite. Our minds are lacking in every way to comprehend not just the size of the created universe, but even more so the greatness of the God who spoke it into existence. And the size of this expanse, the size of the universe says something about the one who created it. And by contrast, it also says something about us. We literally live on a planet that is smaller than a particle of dust when compared to the universe that we live in. And yet, God knows the number of every hair on every one of our heads. And yet, he knows the pain, the heartache, and the suffering that we all face. And he doesn't just know of it. He's done something about it. 
He, God, the one who spoke all of this that we have been discussing into existence. He is the second person of the Trinity, condescended, which means that he came down from the lofty heights of his glory and became a man. He died on a wooden cross for those whom he had chosen from before the foundation of the world. And then he rose from the dead in victory over our sin, proving that the vast chasm that once separated us from the Father was removed for those that have faith in Christ as their Lord and Savior. Consider the following words of John Owen about the condescension of Christ. What will he not do for us? He who thus emptied and humbled himself, who so infinitely condescended from the prerogative of his glory in his being and self-sufficiency, in the susception or the taking on of our nature for the discharge of the office of a mediator on our behalf, will he not relieve us in all our distresses? Will he not do all for us we stand in need of that we may be eternally saved? Will he not be a sanctuary to us? Nor have we upon this any ground to fear his power, for by this infinite condescension to be a suffering man, he lost nothing of his power as God omnipotent, nothing of his infinite wisdom or glorious grace. He could still do all that he could do as God from eternity. If there be anything, therefore, in a coalescency or bringing together of infinite power with infinite condescension to constitute a sanctuary, For distressed sinners, it is all in Christ Jesus. Dear believer, do you know your Savior in this way? Do you know Him as your sanctuary, as your relief in all your distresses? Christ said that His yoke is easy and His burden is light, that He knows your needs and that He will supply all of them according to the riches of His glory. Keep your eyes on His kingdom and His glory. For he has condescended from his station of glory to become a man, to save you from your sin and glorify the Father's name. Dear unbeliever, I implore you to come to a saving knowledge of this Christ. What do you have to lose except for your soul? Christ beckons you to come to him in humility and in repentance of your sin. This same Christ who came down from the heights of his glory to become a sanctuary for distressed sinners. Trust him for your salvation and find rest for your weary soul and do it today. And so God has commanded this expanse into existence from nothing. He commanded the vacuum of of space from the edge of the atmosphere of the earth to the far reaches of the universe to be, and it was. Now, let's consider the second point in our outline, God's command obeyed. As we have seen in verse 6, God issued the command to create the expanse in the midst of the waters, and then it should separate the waters from the waters. And we see now in verse 7, that which he commanded come to pass. So God made the expanse and separated the waters which were below the expanse from the waters which were above the expanse, and it was so. Here's yet another opportunity to contemplate that which we cannot contemplate. 
Here is yet another opportunity to think about God in all his omnipotence, in all of his strength, and in all of his power. Now, we do not know how much water was in existence at the beginning of creation, but it must have been a lot. Today, there is an estimated 326 million trillion gallons of water on the earth, and one gallon weighs 8.33 pounds. Now, I'm not even going to do the math on this one. The point is that the weight of all the water that was in existence at this time is absolutely astronomical. And God literally didn't even lift a finger to move half of this water. Remember verse 7 says that God separated the waters which were below the expanse from the waters which were above the expanse. God doesn't even have to say separate. And this massive, weighty, unimaginable amount of water obeyed the command of his word. It's interesting that God is in the business of moving waters, that he's in the business of issuing commands to creation and creation obeys. In the book of Exodus, we see God through Moses command the Red Sea to part. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and Yahweh swept the sea back by a strong east wind all night and made the sea into dry ground so the waters were split. We also read about Jesus rebuking the wind and sea, and the wind and sea obeyed. And he woke up and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Silence, be still. And the wind died down and it became perfectly calm. Isn't it interesting that from the very beginning, the created world world obeyed the command of God, and that God still issues an instruction, and the creation responds exactly as God requires. So why don't we? When God says, do not covet, why do we covet? When God says to love your neighbor, why don't we? When God says to abstain from sexual immorality, Why do we live in impurity? Why don't we obey God's command immediately and without fail like creation does? It is truly remarkable that when God establishes rules for us to live by and says we should follow them, that we do not obey them. Creation obeys without issue, without debate, without question, but we do not. And this very fact in light of God, in light of the God that we've been speaking about this morning, should cause us to tremble before him. Considering the God whom we've been speaking of this morning, the God of the Bible, the God whose speech commands obedience and all of creation responds accordingly, one preacher marvels at this when he says, the great mystery of creation is how something can come from nothing. Yet Paul writes in Romans 4.17 that God calls into being things that are not there as though they were. God commanded and they were created, the psalmist says. God addresses his command to nothingness, And even nothingness obeys his voice and becomes something. If you ever start to doubt the word of God, think on this. God can issue a command that is so powerful that if nothing is there to obey, the word itself brings forth its own obedience through creation out of nothing. This God, the one who issues a command that is so powerful that if nothing is there to obey it, The word itself brings forth its own obedience. This God is the one who we disobey? Who are we? How dare we? The audacity, the arrogance, the complete and utter foolishness of mankind to not tremble at his command, to not respond with immediate obedience 
we could learn something from the obedience of creation. What a great evil it is that we mere men can decide to do anything different than what God says we should do, and yet men and women and children throughout the world have done so since the beginning of time. They've done so since Genesis 3. As Romans 3.23 says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Ephesians 2 is right when it describes man as dead in transgressions and sins, as slaves to the Spirit that is work in the sons of disobedience, as by nature children of wrath. What a desperate condition we are in because of our disobedience toward this sovereign creator, God. Therefore, I am grateful for the second way that God commands men. God also commands the dead to rise unto the newness of life. For while we were once dead in our transgressions and sins, if you know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you are no longer so. But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead, in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. As we see in Ezekiel 37, God commands dead bones, bones that are so dead that they are not just dry, but they were very dry. There is a complete absence of any evidence of life in them. And to this valley of dry bones, Yahweh says, Behold, I will cause breath to enter you that you may come to life. I will put sinews on you, make flesh come upon you, cover you with skin and put breath in you that you may come alive and you will know that I am Yahweh. And as we've already seen in Romans 4, Paul, speaking of Abraham, says, as it, as it is written, a father of many nations I have made you in the presence of him who he believed, even God who gives life to the dead, and calls into existence that which does not exist. There is a command given by God to those who are children of wrath. There is a command given by God to those who are sons of disobedience. There is a command given by God to those who are dead in their trespasses and sins, which is always heard with faith and thus always obeyed. It is always obeyed by the one whom God has chosen from before the foundation of the world. There is a command given by God that is always obeyed by the person who is foreknown by God and predestined by God and called by God and justified by God and ultimately glorified by God. This command issued by the same God who spoke the expanse into existence in the midst of the waters and then separated the waters He says to the spiritually dead soul, rise. He says, come forth. And the wretched sinner is saved from the wrath of God and ushered into the very presence of our Creator to glorify Him and enjoy Him forever. Have you obeyed this command? You may not realize it, but God is issuing this command to you right now. Are you hearing it? With faith, or has it fallen on deaf ears and a dead heart? Oh, I pray that you have heard with faith, that you have been saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, for there is no no better place 
to be than called by God as one of his own. Now, let us not overlook the last phrase of verse 7, which says, And it was so. About this phrase, John MacArthur says, When God began to separate the waters above and the waters below, and then the dry land appeared and the earth took its shape with land and water, that was the way it would permanently be. This little phrase indicates that it was so and remains so through all the life of the universe. This matters because it puts to bed the notion that God started some evolutionary process that he started it and then used evolution and continues to use evolution to complete his creative work. On the contrary, it was so. It was fixed. It was established then and remains the same to this day. Let's now turn our attention to the third point in our outline, God's authority displayed. Verse 8 says, And God called the expanse heaven. And there was evening, and there was morning, a second day. As as was mentioned in last week's sermon, we should not overlook the importance of God naming that which he creates. God names the light day and darkness night, day one. Here we see God name the expanse heaven, day two. God will go on and name the dry land earth and the gathering of the waters seas on day three. In Genesis chapter 2, we will see that God has Adam named the animals and the birds. The significance of this is that particularly when God names that which he has created, it is an announcement of divine supremacy. It is an announcement that God owns that which he has created. It is an announcement of the authority that God has over his creation. And it is this notion of the authority of God that I'd like to spend a moment considering this morning. It is not enough to say that God has authority over creation. No, it's more than that. He has ultimate, complete, and final authority over all things. And God has this complete, ultimate and final authority over all things because he alone is God and there is no other. Again, consider the words of Isaiah. For thus says Yahweh who created the heavens. In case it's not clear, he says here, He is the God who formed the earth and made it. He established it and did not create it a formless place, but formed it to be inhabited. I am Yahweh and there is none else. He is Yahweh. There is no other. He is God. There is no other. He is Lord. There is no other. He is creator. creator. There is no other. This and this alone is why he has ultimate, complete, and final authority over all things. Not only that, he issues authority to others because he is the one who possesses all authority. He gave man authority. He gave man dominion over his creation. Then God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness, so that they will have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over the cattle and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. 
And we see the same authority attributed to Christ in the New Testament. And Jesus came up and spoke to them saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. And there are grave consequences when we do not submit to the authority of Yahweh. Consider what what happened in the garden when the serpent questions God's authority. When the serpent says to Eve, has God said? And this questioning of God's authority led to Adam disobeying God's command to not eat of the fruit. And thus, sin entered the world. Consider the fact that the words we are reading this morning, the words that are contained here in Genesis 1, the words that are found in the rest of the Old and New Testament, those are God's words. Will we, like the serpent, say, has God said? Or will we instead recognize God's authority and submit to what his word is telling us? As we have seen, there are grave consequences if we do not. And so, God, in his supreme authority, called the expanse heaven. And now we come to this familiar and repeated phrase, and there was evening and there was morning. Why is it evening and then morning, and not the other way around? This is something that I've wondered in as I've studied I've discovered that this order of evening and morning is used to measure a day in Genesis 1 because the beginning of time was marked by darkness. As we see in Genesis 1-2, and the earth was formless and void, and darkness was over the surface of the deep. There was darkness first, before God said, let there be light, in verse 3. Light came after darkness, just as in this repeated phrase, morning comes after evening. What is truly fascinating is that in the Jewish culture, days follow this same pattern. For example, they observe the Sabbath beginning at Friday's sunset until Saturday's sunrise. We see this in the New Testament after Jesus had been crucified when Joseph of Arimathea asked for Christ's body. He placed Jesus' body in the tomb just before sunset. And we see this fact in Luke 23 that this was done because the Sabbath was about to start. Luke 23 says, And he took it down and wrapped it in a linen cloth and laid him in a tomb cut into the rock where, there, where no one had ever lain. It was preparation day, and the Sabbath was about to begin. And so our passage concludes with this final phrase, a second day, following the pattern of six literal days of creation. Interestingly, take a look at verse 5. It concludes with the phrase, one day. It wasn't just the first day, as the King James, New King James, ESV, or NIV have translated it. It was the first day. It definitely was the first day, but it was also one day, which is the translation used in the LSB and the NASB. The point is that the wording of one day instead of first day much more clearly expresses that these days are literal 24-hour days of creation. One day. That the first day was one day, and now the second day is also one day, just like the first, and so on through the rest of this chapter. A simple, straightforward reading of the text gives us 
all that we need to understand what we are supposed to understand. God's Word is not hard to read. The problem arises when the heart that is reading it is hard. May God give us soft hearts. May He give us humble hearts as we approach His perfect, true, consistent, infallible, and inspired Word. One last thought as we close. As you consider the greatness of our God, what kind of an effect has it had on you? How has your thinking about God changed? How has your life been changed? How about your family life, your work life? What affections have risen up in response to being confronted with His majesty? And are those affections commensurate with the weight of what has been put on display before you in these words? It is not enough to just sit here week in and week out and listen to these great truths about the sovereign Lord of the universe and then walk out those doors as if you've not just heard what you've heard. My concern here is as much for myself as it is for all of us, that when we are presented with the height of the majesty and glory of Yahweh, that our hearts are dull that our hearts are distracted with the issues of life, that we are bored, and that we could care less about these things. But these things, these truths about our God are the bedrock upon which we stand. They're the bedrock upon which we stand when we face the trials and difficulties that life presents to us. It is these truths that we should be turning to when all else around us fails, when we don't understand why we are going through what we are going through, when we are at the end of ourselves and feel like our only option is to give up. Do not go out those doors unchanged this morning, brothers and sisters. Visitors, friends, family, do not leave this place the same person that you were, that you were when you walked in here this morning. Oh, may the Lord open the eyes of our hearts to have the strength to comprehend and to know His awesome character as it has been put on display for us here in Genesis 1. Marvel at your God and give Him the worship that is due His holy name. Amen? Amen. Amen. Now I invite Noel and the music team back up to lead us in musical worship as I close in prayer. Heavenly Father, we come before you. We ask for humble hearts, Lord. We ask for eyes that you have opened, Lord, to show us who you are, Lord, to show us your works, to show us your glory, and that we would not just see it, Lord, and walk out as if nothing has been said, but instead, Father, that we would respond in worship, we would respond in brokenness, in repentance over our sin, Lord. We would respond, Father, to the greatness of who you are. And I pray this in Jesus' name, amen.